Welcome to the uh, ninth edition of the Boethius Book Conversations. Tonight we're talking about uh, Odysseus and his homecoming. Our moderator, as always, is uh, Dr. Tom Fleming. Let's give him a warm welcome. We, uh, a year ago, at the first of our meetings, we talked uh, about the uh, uh, the Odyssey, and uh, in particular, we put our concentration was on the help the uh, growing up of Telemachus, you know, as a kind of Bildungsroman, as they, they call it in German, and also some of the 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 ethical questions that modern readers, so the, the point of view of the Greeks that modern readers are, uh, have, have trouble with. And tonight, obviously, some of what we talk about is going to overlap because, you know, the Homeric poems have, 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 you know, are written from more or less uh, one point of view. One of the things we touched on and by the way, I actually sat down and, and listened to it, although I fa fast-forwarded through the, uh, the, dis the, uh, the discussion last time. Uh, my, my son came walking up and said, what are you doing? Are you actually listening to your own, you know, uh, speeches? <laughs> uh, I said, well, you know, I, I, I don't want to repeat myself uh, too much uh, tomorrow night. But there's something I lightly touched on and is, uh, and is worth talking about is the, the difference between the Iliad and the Odyssey, the world of the Iliad and the world of the Odyssey. And it might be a good, good way to begin. You know, the, 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 there's the old cliche that the, uh, which to some extent goes back to Aristotle, that the Iliad is the basis, is, the, is like the first tragedy, uh, you know, Noble people with flaws, you know, especially in the case of Achilles, will come to a bad end, although we don't see that in, in the poem. We know it's going to happen. It's a heroic world. It's a world of men, for example. There are almost the only women who are interesting, really, in the text of the Iliad are Andromache and Helen, and they have fairly brief, fairly brief, uh, 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 on-stage roles. It has been said uh, in the ancient world and, and ever since that Homer never bothered to describe Helen other than, you know, we know she's blonde, tall, and beautiful, but in a way the whole Iliad is a testament, a testament to her beauty, you know, because all, all this is happening because of her. So, but it's a world of a military camp, and so our view of human society of the, and of the, of the Greek world is seen through a kind of a, a, a feudal uh, army where you have the Agamemnon, the lord of men, who is the most powerful man in, in the Greek world. These people, these other uh, kings, they're not subordinate to him, except to the extent that a few of them, like Diomedes and, and Nestor and, and Menelaus to a lesser extent, they, they hold their authority over their various cities from him, 
But all the other chiefs, you know, Achilles is perfectly independent. Uh, Odysseus is perfectly independent. Most most of the leaders are contingent. So they have they swore an oath. They would come, and, and if if anything happened to Helen, they would come and help. And they're they're in fulfillment of the oath. But you know, it's this it's this feudal army with uh, chiefs of different dispositions, and uh, you get very little of Greek domestic life. Everything uh, there is intervention of the, of the gods. But the interventions are usually consistent with human personality. You know, when Athena grabs Achilles by the hair, you know, he has this hair-raising experience of realizing this is, I can't do everything I might want to do. And uh, I'm not, I'm, I won't go into uh, any of that. But when we, when we get to the Odyssey, we are entering a different world. We're entering a world, uh, for example, in which there's a whole lot of fairy tale. You know, there's monsters. You know, we don't have any monsters in the Iliad. You know, the, the but the but the Cyclopes. You know, they're giants. They cannibals. Uh, there's Circe, the witch, who turns people into into animals. There's um, so time after time we we, we enter. These in, in sort of enchanted land of fairy tale. So we're, we're totally cut loose from that disciplined world of military obedience. Uh, the second thing that is so striking is, and, and by the way, this totally undermines all, all social history of the past three or four hundred years, especially feminist history, because we're confronted with these powerful women. Okay, Circe is semi-divine witch. Uh, Calypso is uh, is immortal. She's a, a low-level goddess, a nymph who wants to make Odysseus her, her lifetime companion. But human human women. Well, we we meet Hel Helen is here. Helen is portrayed as a human being, sad over what over what she's the grief she's caused, although. They're there, dear. It's not really your fault. It's understanding. And um, but we have we have um, th three amazing female characters who are simply human. We have the uh, and they all, of course, are very important in uh, the, the part of the book we're going to talk about tonight. Namely, we have uh, Ariti. Queen of the Phaeacians, who is honored as a goddess and treated as more or less equal to her husband, the, the, the king of the Phaeacians. And we have, and, and we should talk more about the, the Phaeacians uh, in a little minute, and uh, then we'll uh, uh, throw it open to more discussion on the bigger levels. But, but she, the idea that the Greeks, you know, walked up on their women all the time and kept them in seclusion and had no respect. Well, it's very hard to explain a character like Ariti. And then we have her char the charming daughter of Alcinous and Ariti, uh, uh, Nausicaa, who is, you know, beautiful. She's 14, 15 years old. She's coming of age. She wants to get married. And she's really she's a lovely, charming girl. It's a, it's a wonderful portrait by somebody who clearly understands women and, and loves women. And then, of course, we have one of the most powerful female characters in all of literature, Penelope. And Penelope's fascinating. 
because it's you never know quite where you stand with Penelope. On the one hand, she deplores the suitors and what they're doing. On the other hand, she's more or less convinced her husband's dead. She's very sorry, but you know she hadn't been married that long. I mean, you know, a year or two, and she had Telemachus. She's been she's been alone all these years, twenty years. And so all these handsome, wealthy young men, yes, they're behaving badly, and she resents them for that. But you know, uh, when she is, she meets Odysseus, and he, he goes and he goes and has this private chat with her. She just thinks he's, you know, the, the bum, the beggar. And she says, you know, I had this dream, and in my dream, my I had this this flock of geese. And who are always eating off this trough with a special mash I prepare for them. I am very fond of these geese. I love the geese. Then the eagle comes down and kills all the geese and eats them. And um, a seer explained to me that the geese are the suitors. Excuse me, wait a minute, wait a minute. You love the geese? You're fond of the geese? You're very attached to the geese? And now you find that there, and so obviously, twenty years go by. You, it's uh, safe to assume that Penelope would like to get married. Uh, and but you know, so Odysseus, although he loves, respects, admires, and he has a little bit of trouble to know where he stands. He doesn't just charge in and say, look at me, let me throw off these rags and Athena will make me handsome again. He can't necessarily take that for granted because he thinks he's come home, but he's come home to an alien world. When he wakes up on Ithaca, what is his first thought? Where am I? Yes. I don't recognize this. Where am I? Everything's changed. Everything's changed. And this is, anybody who's ever tried to go back to his hometown after 30, 40 years or, you know, will will understand a little bit of this. So one of the big things that's that's different is the the role of women and the role of, of domestic life in the Odyssey, which is far more important, and the role of family. We talked a little bit about this last time that, you know, it did. What kind, what, kind, what kind of a hero say, announces himself when he's first, I, I am the father of Telemachus. This is very unusual, you know, for throughout any, any period of history. Um, a, a, a heroic male does not identify himself as the father of his children. So, uh, so um, and we then, I'll shut up in just a second, but we have, we have, um, we have this, these different worlds that Odysseus enters into. We'll set aside the fantastic worlds, the worlds of witchcraft, uh, and uh, the, 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 the cattle of the sun and, and the land of the Cyclopes. But he, he, you've got the world of Ithaca, where these arrogant noblemen who are, are, are violating the rules. You know, there, as Penelope says, you know, normally when a man pays court to a woman, 
he pays the bills. He brings presents. But you're eating up everything, you know, in, 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 in my palace. So it's, it's, it's a disordered society. It's, it's a little bit like um, uh, in, in, in Elsinore and Hamlet. You know, there's something rotten in the state of Denmark. Nothing is as it's supposed to be. Everything is turned upside down. The maids are sleeping with the visitors, and they're violating the rules. They know that their real master, Odysseus, would want them to keep. So everything is turned upside, it's, it's turned upside down. His son is not being allowed to grow up properly and take his place. Then we, we have the world of, uh, of uh, that much of the story is about half the, well, uh, no, about a, a third of the book takes place in the context of Phaeacia. Because we hear about him landing there in uh, book five. We, we have various things happen there. He's entertained. There are games, etc. And then there are... <coughs> Book, several books by which in which he tells the story of his wanderings, but this is all set in Phaeacia. So Phaeacia is a very important place. And uh, and the third realm we have is uh, Mount Olympus. We have we have the, the gods, and that tr that also is a disordered world because uh, there's no unanimity. Zeus and Athena are, as they say, you know, singing from the same text. Odysseus is a great man, he should be allowed to come home. But what do you do in Poseidon? Poseidon is perhaps the second most powerful god in the universe, and you can't just thumb your nose at it. And so, you know, because the, the power of Zeus, it's a little Wagnerian, the power of Zeus depends on him keeping, keeping to his laws. I mean, he can't go and tell Poseidon what to do on the sea. You know, and and so Poseidon could stop Odysseus from coming home. So they have to take advantage, you know, of uh, the fact that Poseidon is off uh, off uh, Africa or whatever, receiving homage from 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 the locals. So we have these. So how we the the, the integration of these different worlds, the Phaeacians, and this is where I'll I'll, uh, I'll start to turn over to more general conversation. The the Phaeacians are a marvelous people because they're technologically superior to everybody that we see in the Iliad and the Odyssey. It is a little bit of a fairy tale world, you know. Their wealth is, uh, is stupendous, but also their generosity. These aren't like the Greeks at all. These are, they're not only gentlemen, you know, they are known, they will always escort a stranger on, on his way. And Poseidon feels this is presumptuous. Where do they get off taking my realm for granted? Because they're great sailors. They're the, 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 the great masters of the sea. And, you know, where, 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 did, uh, where does this idea come from for the, uh, the land of Scaria? Well, it's what? It's a day sail, two day sail, whatever, from, uh, from, uh, from Ithaca. So it's off western Greece. It, it clearly is no place that really exists, but it, it reflects memories of an older world, memories of, uh, of the Mycenaean and maybe even the Minoan world on Crete. Of, they were not very warlike, and the Phaeacians are not warlike at all. They're, they're very sort of peaceful, affectionate, and of course, you know, such people are 
they get walked on, you know. When, <laughs> but, uh, but it, you know, when Odysseus comes to Ithaca, he, of course, concocts, uh, uh, you know, a new story. And his story is, I'm coming from Crete. My, I, I come from, uh, you know, I'm what? He claims at one point to be the brother or half-brother of Adominus, the king of, the king of Crete. But, and he describes the well, you know, nine, Crete has 90 cities. It has different ethnicities. Already, he anticipates that the Dorians would already have come to Crete, which certainly would not have been there during, uh, during uh, Homeric times, during the heroic times. But it seems to me that in saying, you know, I, I come from the knowing Crete, Odysseus is telling a lie that is true. That is that he's been, and he admits to having been on creation. So that, that we have this wonderful, this wonderful world. Okay. Um, I think uh, we should, we should uh, switch gears and talk a little bit about the uh, the character uh, of, of of our hero. What sort of a person is Odysseus? Would other than seeming a lot like a used car dealer? <laughs> <laughs> He's certainly loyal. He's loyal. Yeah. Tenacious. Tenacious. Yeah. 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 Clever. Very clever. Yeah, the uh, the first the first uh, first line of the Odyssey is called an aner polutropos, a man of many turns and twists. You know, both because he has had to make many turns in his checkered career, and also because he's capable of turning on a dime, changing his story, inventing strategies. So he's he's very clever. Physically robust and powerful. Very robust and powerful. Um, when he, on Ithaca, of course, he, he, he lands and he looks like a worn-out bum. Now, because Athena makes him look, you know... Disguises him. Yeah, disguises him. And he tells Telemachus to go. Because Telemachus, when he, when he says, look, I'm your father, you know, and then all of a sudden... He, he blazes forth, you know, in his in his beauty and power, and uh, and Telemachus says, "Oh, what if you're a god?" He says, "No, no, but the gods can make you make things seem." But in fact, let's suppose let's suppose Odysseus were let's say 25 when he set out. He's a 45 year old man who's had some really hard times. He would be the the beggar. That he lands disguised at is what a person like this would really be like. So, in a way, the beggar is is one aspect of the reality. And Penelope says, she says to herself, you know, if my husband were to come back, he'd probably be like this bomb that is completely worn out, shabby, etc. So he is, uh, now Homer doesn't want us to believe that that's what he really is, because the essence of, of Odysseus, he has an age, and that's partly because, you know, he's got divine blood, because he's a, he's a Homeric king, and he's got the support of, uh, of Athena. But so he is, so he's a, but he is a character 
that if you just look at the human reality of Odysseus, he probably he would be a broken down, worn out old man. Whereas in fact, he is the toughest person he is he meets in the entire world. He still, at the age of forty-five, is a terrifying human being to try to uh, try to uh, have a conflict with. As we see when he has the uh, the fight with Iris the beggar, and he has to think to himself, should I hit him, should I give him a real punch, which will knock his head off, or should I give him a light touch? Oh, because the light touch breaks his jaw. <laughs> yes, so uh, it's his idea of light is perhaps not what the rest of us would like to face. Let's talk. What, what is it? Are you bothered by the fact that he is an inveterate liar? Yes. Could you elaborate? <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, he tells a lot of his stories, and they're good stories. Uh, you know, to weasel out of a situation or to disguise who he is and where he is and why he is there. He's pretty straight with the Phaeacians, though. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, uh, if you, anybody's been reading my, well, actually, most of this hasn't been posted yet, but uh, I'm, I'm working on this chapter on the defense of honor on our website. And one of the big questions in defending honor is, does a man of honor have to tell the truth in, uh, across the board in all situations, in all societies? And more specifically, in a primitive modern Greek sheep herding, you know, uh, uh, culture in northern Greece, is it okay to lie? Well, the answer is yes. Now the question, to whom are you obliged to tell the truth? That, that is, a, for, for cultures based on honor, where, when, when do you have to tell the truth? Well, for these uh, sheep herding Greeks, if you say, I swear to God, I didn't do that. Now, if you you swear to God that something is true, you have and it's not, you have made a powerful enemy. You can't, so you can't lie to God. That's what, number one. And uh, and and Odysseus is very careful. He understands very much that as a mortal human being, with the support of one or two gods, still. You've got you've got to be straight with with the divine. So to that extent, he's consistent with say modern Greek peasant morality. Well, in in pursuing honor, and and Odysseus is a man of honor. Otherwise, they they wouldn't be as much as Achilles or Ajax or Hector. Uh, to whom do you have to tell the truth other than the gods? Your family. Your family. And your peers. Every society, every known human society that cares about shame and honor, cares about cares about preserving honor from your the people whom you are supposed to respect. Aristotle says everybody craves honor, and honor is a part of happiness if you achieve it, because honor is the respect of people that deserve respect. Never crave honor from your inferiors. Never crave honor from dishonorable people or from or from low class people because they they're incapable of granting honor. 
Their, their, their respect for you doesn't matter. So, for example, uh, you know, if you're Elvis and you go out on stage and you know, you're a wonderful audience and everybody loves you, you see, that's, that's not honor. That's just, that's just celebrity. So honor requires you to uh, be truthful to your peers. So when Achilles tells uh, Odysseus in the 11th book of the Odyssey, I hate a lie like the gates of hell. And living in hell, he or, or being dead in hell, he, he, he knows about what he's talking about. He, he hates it. Uh, so, does it, in, in, in the course of the Iliad, do we ever see Odysseus lying to Agamemnon, to Nestor, to Achilles, to Ajax, to Diomedes? And the answer is no. No. In... Uh, so he, he so from from that point from the point of view heroic morality he's okay in the Odyssey he's an incredible liar throughout and, and clearly enjoys it and when uh, when you know there's this long involved story when his old nurse Euryclea is bathing him and she feels the scar and she realizes who it is and she and so we get this whole story about a boar hunt and how he was gashed. And he was out hunting with his, what, his grandfather or whatever, Autolycus, who was the most master thief and liar in the history of the human race and what a wonderful guy he was. <laughs> and uh, the, the, this is clearly a, a, a little bit different from what we or classical Greeks could tolerate. But, as you point out, he tells the Phaeacians more or less the truth, not initially, but when they say, tell us who you are now, he tells them the truth. Because they, they have treated him the way you're supposed to treat a noble person. So he is now in a society of peers, and tr the rules on truth-telling about uh, you know, honor among gentlemen, all of that, all of that now takes place. Um, the other thing... When he lands on Ithaca, you know, and this lovely young woman comes to him and she says, who are you? And he gives us this long, ridiculous lie and she smiles and says, you don't recognize me? See anything different about me? I'm a god, the goddess Athena. <laughs> and he says, well, you know, listen, ma'am, it's not always easy to recognize, you know, because you, you gods can disguise yourself. And she said, look, there are two things. You, you, you made you're, you're, I love the way you make up all these stories. You're very resourceful, but you know some of that's got to stop. And then secondly, you have to control yourself. You are a man of, you know, he, like any Greek hero, you're a man of great. You have a great sense of honor and self-respect, and you're not going to take it. Somebody comes up to you, insults you. I'm obviously I'm expanding on our word. You, you can't, you, you're not going to be a, nobody's going to spit on you, nobody's going to kick you, nobody's going to slap you, you know, that, that you don't respond. You can't trust anybody here. These suitors are eat, eating up your house, they're going to kill your son, and they will kill you if you know, if they know who you are. You must control yourself. Now this is so, this is a real test. A, He's going to have to learn to heart, just again, to start telling the truth among truthful people, which does not include the suitors. 
And even with the swineherd Eumaeus, he's, he tries to give him, well, I'm a noble person, I come from a noble family, and he, he, tries to, he tries to palm himself off as, as a Cretan. But second of all, he has to, he has to take a lot of abuse, from, not only from the suitors, but even from people who are vastly, I mean, who are bums, who are losers. Now, uh, what, what is the great occasion in the course of the Iliad where he, where he doesn't take, where he, where he doesn't exercise self-control? There's one, there's one great occasion, and it's the cause of all his woes. Listen, Polyphemus, if anybody asks you who yes. did this to you, nobody. tell them who it is. Tell them, it's not nobody, it's Odysseus. And uh, and so Polyphemus immediately says, "Father Poseidon, curse this man." You know, and and so because of his 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 uh, his his nobility has gone to the point of arrogance, or lack of prudence, and lack of self control. That's what's the cause of his grief. So now, in uh, in uh, on returning. He has to take everything. He has to eat excrement in order to get done what he has to do. The, uh, so here we have a story, and I'm sure it's a familiar story. A story of a great man who has to return, has to, return to, the, to a country he has left. He has to come, come to this he has to bring it to order, restore it to moral order, but he has to appear as a complete loser. Ugly, despised, and rejected. And this is, if there's ever a work of pre-Christian literature that prefigures the, the basic gospel story, you know, he came and... You know, it, you know the, it, the the light shone in the darkness, but the darkness knew it not. He came to his own, and they rejected him. I mean, the whole—it's not just Isaiah and the the suffer and, and the tale of the suffering servant. It's the whole preface to John's gospel, and in a crude kind of pagan, in a crude pagan way, Odysseus has to humble himself. He has, he, you know, and just as Jesus has to keep the, the keeps on telling, it's the so-called messianic secret. Don't tell anybody who you think I am. Don't don't tell anybody this about the miracles. So Odysseus similarly comes in in disguise, completely disfigured. You know, even even his beautiful Nordic blonde hair, which the which the Greek aristocrats all have. It's interesting. We know there's one dark-haired gal in the book, figure in the book. Who is that? Melantho the maid. Melantho means basically darky. So uh, she's the maid. She is the slut maid who is sleeping with the suitors and reviles. So see, hair like mine is lower class. Jim would be Odysseus. He'd be the. He'd be the maid. Don't don't let this go to your head. <laughs> Any Englishman can be Odysseus. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that you know, but even even that, even even the color of his hair has to be disguised so that you don't realize that that he is Xanthos, that he is 
and he's got this tawny blonde hair, which the, all the Greek aristocrats have, and, and, and Apollo has as well. So, um, and so the, this, he, he, he has to come as somebody that is, uh, that is uh, contemptible. Now, this is a problem. Because, uh, you know, Greek Homeric morality, which we have only a few people have ever gone beyond or even equal, Homeric morality equate goodness, virtue, is a quality of being an upper class, noble person who has courage and good looks. Well, excuse me, what about, what about somebody who is you know, on the skids? Well, obviously, you're a loser. And in the you know in in the Iliad, there's one there's one loser character that's portrayed. And who, who is that? Ajax. No, no, Ajax is a nobleman. He's Odysseus. He's a. He's a no, no. It's the uh, it's Thersites. Thersites, the, the the he's misshapen. He's cons- He's the Democrat. He's constantly said, "Well, I don't know why uh, we have to do things just because these guys stay there. <laughs> they're they're chieftains. They're gods and." And Odysseus beats it. And the army applauds and says, you've done many fine things, Odysseus, but this is the finest. Showing his bum, you know, the, you know what. Now, all of a sudden, Odysseus is their sightings. You know, he's, he's ugly, he's, 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 uh, he's dirty, he's, got, he's disheveled. And so, um, really, the, 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 the Odyssey... Like the book of Job, it, it, it raises these profound questions. Like, Job, why, why, why should a just man suffer? Well, that's what Athena says at the beginning of the Odyssey. This man has been assiduous in paying his dues to the gods, and now we're letting him, you know, get his brains beaten out. Why? Why is? How can, how can this be? Well, how can this be a just universe if this great man will suffer? And then he comes home. And because he's not good-looking, because he's, he's old, disheveled, dirty, ugly, he's a loser, therefore he has to be ignoble. It's, and it's interesting that it's a test. The people who uh, uh, look at him like Antinous, the most arrogant of the suitors, wants to slap him around, throws a chair at him, you know, does all sorts of bad things, uh, and some of the mage. Whereas, Eumaeus the swineherd understands that, who himself comes from an aristocratic background, uh, and uh, but was but was sold into slavery by, through through trickery. And so again, Eumaeus is a no. He's all he's called Dios Eumaios, the divine, the godlike swineherd. Well, this this is should be a contradiction in terms. But no, he's an aristocrat. Well, this, this, so the, the Odyssey is asking a question which the Iliad doesn't ask, which is, well, is our, our appearances always true? Is the way a person looks always a guarantee? So if you look like a Hollywood star, that means I should deserve my respect, right? And the, and the answer, of course, is no. So there are characters when they meet uh, in 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 Ithaca when they meet uh, Odysseus, 
they say, well, however, appearances can be deceived. We shouldn't mistreat this man. And what's the argument? Say to remember. The gods often come and visit this mortals guy. in disguise. And so there's a famous story of what, Baucis and Philemon, uh, an elderly couple, and uh, Zeus and Hermes visit, and they're, they visit as bums, but they're treated. They're treated with great respect. And so, and they say, well, we'll give you anything you want. And, and of course, we know the Greeks didn't love their wives, and marriage didn't mean anything. So they say, we love each other so much, we want to die on the same day. And that favor is granted them. Um, so the the notion that, so this and, and, and Telemachus thinks well I know that the gods will sometimes visit you know human beings in disguise you could be a god it's, it, this comes up about four times in Ithaca all the decent people say this for all we know you know now what is there anything anything in Christian morality that this is reminiscent of anything in the Gospels the good Samaritan. Well, yes. What about something that Jesus says? You know, when I, you know, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was poor, you, you know. Well, when did we ever do these things to you, Lord? Well, it is in as much as you have done it to you know. So, in other, words, it's exactly treat the poor as if they might be gods in disguise. You know, and it could. And uh, was it Mother Teresa or something who said that? Uh, you had to learn to see Christ in the in the face in the face of a beggar. So we have, in in an eerie way, we have a, a crude pagan anticipation of this. The way to learn how to treat other people is just well, just imagine, just imagine that, imagine he's that this bum is just made up to be a bum. What if it's a god? What if it's what if it's a king? Treat, treat them at least with, ba feed them, clothe them, treat them with basic res human respect until they teach you otherwise. Until what? Now, obviously, if Achilles had, uh, Odysseus had behaved as a, as a disreputable person, then he would have forfeited any right to be treated as even. Questions so far? I've been doing all the talking. Now it's your turn. Should I take a little break? Should we take a break? Yeah, let's take a brief break. We have a little more wine. So we begin again after uh, libation, <laughs> and uh, after we had drunk and eaten our fill. Yes, and, uh, indeed. Homer says over and over. So I'm sure that you have uh, have questions to hold up your end of the uh, yeah. conversation. I have one, Alex. Because in the Iliad, it's Odysseus that comes up with the idea of the Trojan horse, right. which basically destroys the city, yeah. the whole city of Troy. And the Odyssey is almost, he's doing penance for it. He, he now learns, the, like the Trojans learn suffering, he yeah. learns suffering yeah. through losing his crew, through coming home to Ithaca, finding his wife surrounded by suitors. So you, I love what you said about it being like the book of Job, where he's learning uh, basically bad things. He's not a good man because of what he did in Troy. But now he's learning the meaning of suffering and is being educated by it. The, uh, there's a lot of truth in that. They wouldn't, the Greeks didn't 
would not have looked on what Odysseus did. He and, uh, I guess, Palamedes uh, both take credit for the Trojan horse. Uh, this wasn't a bad thing to do, but on the other hand, but what happened at Troy, uh, they all had to pay for it. You know, the Odyssey is, uh, is uh, of course, the second most famous work of, home, of the Homeric cycle, the Iliad being the, 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 the most famous in antiquity, but there were many other works. There was a work called The Fall of Troy, the Iliopersis. There was a Book called the Little Iliad. There was a book, a very popular book called the Cypria, which is about the ju- the judgment of Paris and the, the, the Paris running away with Helen. And this was said. To, this was thought to be almost as good as the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's completely lost. And it was attributed to uh, a poet. Uh, also said, Astasinus, um, I think was his name. But it also said that. Um, it was Homer's uh, gift to his daughter when she, when she got married, the scientists took credit for it. That's obviously just a, a mythical story. But one of the stories, one of the poems, was called the Nostoi, the homecomings, because they all had trouble. None of them got home uh, well. Menelaus had to go searching, and we hear some of the, the Menelaus story in the Odyssey, he has to go looking for Helen. Why you know. wasn't she in Troy? Well, she's in. She ends up in Egypt, and, you know. So there's all this. So there's this story. So Menelaus troubles, and uh, Odysseus has. I think, if I'm remembering correctly, he's got. He he in one of his many lies, he alludes to this thing. Idomeneus, one of my favorite of the uh, of the Greek heroes, the king of uh, Crete. I loved him because you know, he's a he's got gray hair, and although he's a great hero, when he's fighting in the line in book thirteen, he's got these series of exploits, but then his knees start giving way. It's you know arthritic. And, you know, he's, he's probably only forty five, but but or fifty, but you know this kind of war is a young man's game. And uh, but he comes back, and there's a terrible storm at sea, and he vows to that he will. Sacrifice the first living thing he meets, and it's what his son or daughter, wife. Or wife. So, uh, of course, there's the, the Mozart opera Idomeneo, yeah. is based on on this story, which I guess Mozart got from Ovid, I think. But and anyway, but you know, you go down the line. They and um, they all Agamemnon, of course, has the uh, the worst. Yeah. 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 He, shall we say? The investment he put in his family life, he really took a bath on that one. <laughs> so, yes. uh, since he murdered in his bathtub by his wife and her lover. Uh, but, you know, you, you go to, and uh, every one of them, Diomedes goes into exile. And so, uh, Virgil makes a lot out of this in the Aeneid because you have, you, you meet all these different people in the, in the wanderings. Both Trojans and uh, and Greeks have had to go off to Italy or elsewhere and found new cities. What uh, historically, what they're grappling with is the fact that if if they let's just say the dramatic date, the historical date of the Trojan War is about let's just say 1175 BC. Between 1175 and 
and say Homer's time, which is about uh, 300 years. During that period, it's like the fall of Rome, of the Western Empire. In other words, there were a a series of uh, the whole Mediterranean world is disrupted. And the Eastern Mediterranean, there are these stories of the so-called Sea Peoples coming in. So we, we have names of some of them, you know, and uh, which sound a lot like uh, Sardinian and uh, uh, Achaean, and uh, the Philistines seem to have been uh, Sea Peoples, probably Indo-European, probably Indo-European. Goliath... Uh, was probably, uh, you know, they, those people who the, gave the children of Israel such a hard time, they were probably more or less like the Greeks. But anyway, so we have over, and, and so we, what you see constantly is the, the burning of fortified citadels, the sacking of towns. The Greeks uh, during this period are pushed out of because they had trading stations and cities along the coast of Asia Minor and in those islands off Asia Minor, and to a large extent, they're pushed out. Now, this is, this is the Homeric homeland. Homeric Homer is said to have come principally from either Chios or Smyrna, modern Ismir. So, uh, and then, in the, in, on the Greek mainland, the, 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 the legendary story, which scholar, historians are inclined to doubt, but there's a lot of evidence to back it up, is that Northwest Greeks came pouring in, much less civilized. Uh, the so- so-called Dorians and some of their uh, some of their allies, they they and they took over uh, virtually all of mainland Greece, in, from Boeotia, Achaea, you know the Pel- the Peloponnesus, and this this displacement meant that, for example, in the legendary version. In the epic version, Agamemnon's son Orestes rules, but his son, what is it, Tisamenus, is driven out and has and goes and, and in fact he, those people go, they go to Lesbos, and so that they're the ancestors of the aristocracy on the island of Lesbos on Mytilene. Who are the you know eventually produced Sappho and Alcaeus and this whole this whole Iliad culture, but and the, the people Nestor's grandson is displaced, and he leads his people to Athens, where they stay for about a generation before launching a recolonization of of uh, the of the the islands and uh, and uh, and the what is now the Turkish coastline. So my point is that there's a period of about 100 to 150 years of disruption and violence, and the, uh, this whole Bronze Age civilization, which was very high, equal to the quality of life, say, in Egypt, and it collapses to a primitive level. So when you read Homer, what we're dealing with is people who have a have a tradition a tradition incorporated in verse of remembering how wonderful life was. And that's by the way, that's that's life on Scaria, the Phaeacians. Everything is lovely, but that's not the way they're living in Homer's time. These people are uh, 
largely they're Ill- illiterate shepherds, you know, living in, in periods of violence. So, so they're dealing with a lost golden age. And it's interesting that um, you know Toynbee in a in a in his last book, which I reviewed before I became editor of Chronicles, before I even came here, reviewed four Chronicles. And I posted it on our website the, the review. Toynbee has this view that the Greeks are always reinventing themselves based on their past. And the first level of this is trying to grapple with the Mycenaean world, which was so much better than, than, than the world of Homer's time. So, it's a long, roundabout way of saying, in answer to Alan, yes, on, a, on, a, on, a, on the one hand, historically, all of these legendary heroes came back, uh, and n- n- in, in no case was there did they have a happy homecoming. In the case of Odysseus, he wins temporarily, but then you know, you know, there's this blood feud that breaks out uh, with the with the uh, the families of the suitors that he is has quite rightly killed. But uh, you know, blood is blood. From the Greek point of view, blood you you spill somebody's blood, that blood's got to be paid. And uh, you can't get away with this forever. And it, it's the whole idea of the of the vendetta and blood price, we're guilt, which is very common in Germanic countries and in Slavic countries. But this we're guilt was it's 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 in Homer on the shield of Achilles. They've got you know the city at war. They got people fighting, trying to storm a city. This is the city made the the uh, the, the shield made for him by the god Hephaestus. Then there's the city of peace, and in the city of peace, what you see is oh, there are people you know doing various things, but you see a scene where two kindreds with medi- with with mediators are working off the price of blood for somebody who had been killed. So the blood price and and it, it, it is a really important thing. Anyway. So all so Odysseus, and of course the legend is that Odysseus has to go on wandering because the Poseidon still has a curse on him, and he's got to carry an oar on his shoulder until he finds a place where somebody says to him, "What's that winnowing flail you're carrying?" With, you know something with, with you know uh, sort wheat from from uh, the, the the wheat berries from the chaff, and and uh, you know this is. Uh, not much, not not much of a happy life to spend all that time. But they all have gone through misery. Is that because it's so far away from Poseidon? Correct. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Now, to go back more directly to Alan's question or to Alan's comment, yes, the 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 Greeks understood on the one hand in their tradition the sack of Troy was the greatest event in the history of the sort of Bronze Age legendary world of, with Hercules and Theseus and the Argonauts and all that. This is the this is the biggest event. On the other hand, it's not good. So if you uh, the one of the greatest masterpieces of Western literature, the Aristia of uh, Aeschylus, you know uh, Agamemnon's coming home. He's the greatest man in human history from the Greek point of view. He's done great things. Priam was a sinner. Priam took in his son who had stolen Helen and her property, and the Trojans are guilty 
and they have paid terribly. Fine. The Greeks, however, have burned temples and destroyed innocent life. Well, and violated, I mean, stealing of Cassandra. Yes, the stealing of Cassandra, the prophetess of Apollo, but uh, she was raped by the lesser Ajax. The lesser Ajax, who said, when the storm at sea said, you can't stop me, I'm a, you know, a hero, I don't care about the gods, etc. And when, um, in the course of the play, Agamemnon is seduced by his wife, Clytemnestra, Helen's sister, into walking on these elaborate Persian carpets, so to speak, and he shows, he says, Priam, this is the kind of, I, I shouldn't, this kind of thing Priam would do. And his wife talks him into doing it. In other words, there's a moral equivalence, you know. And the Greeks are among the few people who, on the one hand, they believe they're better than everybody else in the world. But on the other hand, they also understand that they have moral responsibilities. And so all of these people come, these great heroes, they all come to tragic ends. And they all have to, or, or at least... They have to bear the consequences of what they've done in their in their in their in their triumph, and it is a uh, it is there is this infinite sadness that, that that's under the surface because you know Greek life, Greek literature, Greek art is so beautiful and so and so ennobling, but there's this sense of sadness underneath. And what is it? Who says here in one of the late last books of the Odyssey that life? Life, human life, does not last that long, and um, and that you know you you you'd better learn to behave yourself while you're here because you know this is. Let's see if I can find that. Um, Yes, Penelope says, "How, how, sir, shall you be able to learn whether or not I am superior to others of my sex, both in goodness of heart and understanding, if I let you dine in my cloisters, squalid and ill-clad? In other words, I have an obligation. You're a bum, but you know you seem like a nice guy. I have a, I have an obligation to help you. Men live but for a little season." If they are hard and deal hardly, people wish them ill so long as they are alive and speak contemptuously of them when they are dead. But he that is righteous and deals righteously, the people tell of his praise among all lands, and many shall call him blessed. Now that, that, is, that is really, that's the heart of the moral point here in the, that, you know, you... Yeah, for the Greeks, you do only go around once. There is no heaven. There's hell, but there's no heaven. And uh, the least you can do is try to behave in such a way as to deserve people's respect during your life. And that means treating other people as, as, as uh, fellow sufferers, fellow human beings. Yes? I, there were two or three little stories that bothered me in this return. One is oh, the island where Elis... One of the winds lives. Yes, yeah. yeah. All right, so 
But this is, I think this time he tells a straight story, doesn't he? Yeah. I'm so-and-so yeah, and I'm the, the truth and I'm he tells to get out. And by then he still has a good portion of his ships with him. And um, so Elis gives him a bag full of winds, right? You can use them to get yourself home. You, know, you could use it to get yourself into Congress. <laughs> yeah, this is true too, but he wasn't worried about that. He just wanted to get home. So everything is going fine, but then we get the story that his men growing. And this is where I'm wondering where stupid democracy rears its ugly head. They say, everywhere we have gone, they've given him yeah. gold, you know, tripods, all these gorgeous things. Nothing for us. Now, uh, it's not as if he hadn't let them loot enough, but they've had two or three wrecks now, and they've lost a lot of loot. So uh, one of them says, you know, I bet there's some really great things in that bag, you know. And they talk together, and they unloose the bag, and, of course, everybody's pretty much lost. Yeah. Now, Odysseus, though, goes back to the island and said, I'm sorry, I fell asleep, and my men did this. And he says, no. you are cursed by the gods. Get out of here. I'm not giving you anything else. Which is one of the first times where he was told anything strict like this. And he, uh, it's a rough time. Well, he, you know, look, I had, I had a good friend in college named Willie. And uh, Willie, however, had no self-control. Willie uh, drank too much, he ate too much, he got uh, rather stout. Willie, uh, you had to be very careful that if you had a guest bathroom, you couldn't have any prescription medicine because you would be looking at the labels and, oh, that's groovy, I haven't tried that one. Uh, when he would visit me in Chapel Hill, Willie was known as Mr. Grass because he grew up on a tobacco farm and he would bring in like carefully refined, well-grown marijuana, which was selling it by in quart jars. <laughs> no, no, excuse me. He was trading it for more interesting. He was up, you know, trading. Anyway, um, the, the, uh, Willie, his history professor, Finzi Spaulding at the University of Georgia, Willie went to the College of Charleston, but Spalding went off to the University of Georgia. The Spaldings were a very famous family in Georgia, very wealthy. And uh, Willie needed a job, so uh, Finn Spalding got him an interview with his cousin, who was a bank president. So Willie gets lost on the way, and uh, he shows up 45 minutes late, and, and so they bring him in, and he says, I'm sorry, can we re you know? And the guy just looked at him, he said, ah, ah. I, I gave you an interview. I would have given you a job out of friendship and courtesy to my cousin. So you only get this kind of deal once in life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> goodbye. Don't call me again. <laughs> and, and that's the deal with Eolus, you know. And but why didn't Odysseus know this? Because he, because he makes mistakes. We all, you know, he's not, you know, he's not infallible. And um, and what what the more interesting part of the story I think is yeah the the uh, his crew decide they they like democracy right and by the way and there's a passage in the Iliad I can't I can't remember which book but there's a passage where it refers somebody and it may be it may be Odysseus himself refers to 
why you, why you need what you need the rule of a king and not uh, the, not the rule of many men who will always produce chaos and uh, the Homeric world is a world in which the lower classes are supposed to keep their mouths shut and they're supposed to show loyalty and friendship and to the and, 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 and admiration to the leader but the leader will turn around and reward them. Odysseus has been very good to his men, but they're constantly, they're, they have a, these animalistic urges, and they constantly break the rules. Uh, the second incident, it sounds like the southern part of Sicily, the island of the sun, and yeah. he, they are told to not eat these yes. Whatever you do. Whatever you do. Right, now, Rereading this, I realized you know, they're driven to starvation, yes. to storms, so they can't be. And finally, they said, "That's it." And which also puzzles me. Would think one cow would do for a certain number? No, they kill something like ten or twelve or twenty. <laughs> and uh, they're roasting, and he comes back in, and he says, "Oh no, now we're done for." And they are. And when they leave, they're all smashed to smithereens. Because the difference between Odysseus and his men is not only his superior self-control, which doesn't always manifest no. itself, but usually does, and second of all, his uh, his reverence for the divine order. And this is something Athena comments on in the at the very beginning, in the in the first council of the gods, that this man always pays us respect. And uh, if there's one one very obvious lesson to a Greek in reading the Odyssey is don't mess with these beings. Treat them with the respect they demand. If you mess with them, you will be very, very sorry. And, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a famous uh, passage in Pindar where I'm... Pindar is uh, uh, Hercules in the, in the story of Hercules in the cattle of Garion. Well, Hercules has stolen his cattle, you know, and I mean, it really, and uh, in the in the conflict, and, and and Pender says, "You did nothing wrong, Garion, but you should not have, uh, you should, you cannot fight with the son of Zeus. That you have to, as a human being, you have to know your place, and as a lower class person, you have to know your place. It's a hierarchical order. It's not a static order because it's an order in which adventurous men." can carve out, oh, it's more like frontier America in that respect. But you you do have to, you, you, you can't aspire, you, you, you can't get beyond your place, because if you do, you're going to be, you're going to be smacked down. The Psalms say that also. Yeah, yeah. They say, I, I have not uh, overreached my, my place. The Greeks constantly, they had, on the one hand, they were the most arrogant, overreaching people probably who ever lived. And on the other hand, they're constantly telling themselves, be content with mortal things, do not attempt to be a god, measure is best. The great Greek moral sin is hubris, which is to, 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 to assume that I, I'm rich and successful because I'm basically good. I deserve this. And as soon as you start thinking that way, instead of thanking the gods for your good luck, and you say, I deserve this, I can do anything I want to do, then uh, you are riding for a fall. And that's, that's, the tragic, uh, that's the tragic outlook. And that's why, even though the Odyssey has a happy ending, 
And you could say, compared with the Iliad, it's, you know, it's a comedy rather than a tragedy. But the same wisdom of tragedy is here. That is, that measure, self-control, uh, uh, and, and piety, and knowing your place, these are virtues which, if you, if you do without them, you die. Yes? Another little problem. Um, the Asians are splendid people. Yes. Right. And, and they generously, and maybe this is what you mean by magical, that overnight they can get into Ithaca and yeah, they yeah. come back. But in the meantime, Poseidon, who has a sense of honor, let's face it, he is not Zeus, but he is his brother. If you said there's some debate as to who should take precedent, he said, what about my honor? This man's offended me. He must pay for it. And you said he had to get home. All right. The Asians have taken him home. And as you also yeah. did, it was sort of semi-sneaky. Yeah. So now, just by being good hosts and generous, Phaeacians are going to have to pay for this. Yep. So, uh... Now, Zeus mitigates... He mitigates it, I know. Because Poseidon wants to blow the whole thing up. <laughs> and uh, Zeus says, no, 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 wait a minute. When the ship comes back, why don't you just go boom? It'll become a rock. And his brother's willing to do that. Now, it still means these fine rowers and yeah. seamen are, are sacrificed. But also, the, the whole place is going to be blocked off right. or, or whatever. And they'll be doomed. Now, these are innocent people. Why do they have to suffer? Well, King Alcinous says he remembers a prophecy that yes, this would he happen. Yes, he did. And, um, you know, the, again, one of the differences between the Greeks and us is that we spend all our life and that is the past 2,000 years of our tradition we spend uh, trying to show that if you're, uh, if you're rich, it's because you're good, and if you're poor, it's because you're bad or you've done something wrong. And, um, you know, the, 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 uh, one thing I learned early on in, in reading Greek literature is that they don't lie to, they don't lie to themselves or the reader. It makes them see. We are Christianity is full of hypocrisy because we pretend to be better than we are. We're constantly doing. It. If you can live up to the Christian ideal, or you can simply say, "Well, I accept Christianity on this level, but I'm also a gentleman, and I'm going to live like that, and I'm not going to be a liar." That is very possible. And so you have these wonderful European aristocratic traditions, especially in, say, France and Italy and Austria and places like that. But unfortunately, we're, we've had this strong, well, we, we pretend to virtues we don't have, constantly. So men, so men who chase women all the time will pretend to be model family men. And, you know, it's just, it's just you know, it, it's just, it's a, we have a culture of hypocrisy. The Greeks have nothing like that. You are what you are, and you, and you live by your code, and the hell with anybody who doesn't like you. My, my uh, dissertation director, Douglas Young, used to say, because I, re- I was looking, I was reading all these, uh, uh, you know, Greek lyric and electronic poets, and, you know, you're reading all Solon, the great wise lawgiver, and then all of a sudden, you got something about the attractive backside of a young man. And I thought, wait a minute. And his answer was, <laughs> you could... <laughs> You can never give the Greeks the benefit of the doubt. I mean, that is, they all, 
if they want something, if they like something, if they desire something, they will be frank about it. And they're really, this is one of the reasons, and it sets them apart even from the Romans. They're much more pragmatic, much more direct, much more honest. And so this is the way, this is, you know, the, the Greek answer would be, don't ask me. I don't know why. If, this is the, if, if Poseidon wants it, don't mess with Poseidon. There are forces beyond you. You can't put, you know, there used to be this Protestant sermon, you can't put God in a box. You, know, you, you must have heard that about a hundred times. You can't put God in you know, God, is, God is bigger than any box you'll put him into. Well, believe me, Poseidon is bigger than any box you put him into. Right. So you must not offend him. You must you you must understand that you know Poseidon's Poseidon and you are you and you are you you know you live at you live at a different level, and and of course the most amazing thing in uh, in the Iliad is the uh, the two occasions on which Diomedes, backed by Athena, fights with a god, fights with Ares, fights with Aphrodite, and so finally you know this is this, this is terrifying for him. I mean, he's a very great hero, but he's also a man of prudence and judgment, although a young man. And so when he meets the young Glaucus, it may be the most beautiful scene in Homeric literature. One of the one of the two or three was beautiful. And he says, he says, hmm, you're a good-looking young man. Uh, could you possibly be a god? Because I'm, I'm, I'm through. I'm not fighting any more gods. <laughs> Even though he has won in both occasions. Um... And that's when Glaucus says, why, uh, you know, what's his father's name? Uh, son of, son of um, Tydeus, why do, you, why do you ask me who I am? The generations of man are like leaves that blow, the, blow in the wind. And uh, because, you know, but Diomedes knows that you can't go through life throwing, hitting gods in the belly with a spear. And watching the divine ichor spill out pale through their fingers. No, you. <laughs> well, How did he survive? Well, he had to, first of all, because it was Athena's doing, uh-huh. and, and he has humility the whole time. He's my favorite character in the Iliad, by the way, because he is, as, he is not as brilliant as Odysseus, but he's prudent and careful. And Nestor says, you, you, are, uh, you are among the two or three bravest men here. You're a great heroic warrior. <clears throat> but you listen to your elders. You know, and uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a wonderful character. And since his father was almost made a god and would have been a god, but when Athena got permission to immortalize him, and she comes down on the field of uh, the seven against Thebes, and she finds him chewing the brain out of his enemy, she turns away in revulsion. Diomedes is not like his father. But on that charming note of cannibalism, <laughs> we should uh, we should end.